Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to Season 4 of Just Sustainability. In this episode, we return to my conversation with Jill Fellows. In the previous two episodes, Jill and I spoke about podcasting and public scholarship, but in this episode, we shift our attention to the topic that's been the primary focus of Jill's scholarship, the interplay between gender and technology. I think this is a good time to switch gears because we've talked a lot about <laughs> gender and technology uh, and your podcast about gender and technology and your anthology about gender and technology. And you did remark, right, like that you, you had a concern that it, it was an underappreciated area, which I think you're right. I think people have thought about technology and equity and technology and sustainability. Uh, and I, and I think there is some recognition that gender impacts how, uh, impacts, right? Like the, I guess, implementation technology, right? So like, I, I think it's fairly common in the, the literature I'm familiar with to talk about different burdens along gender lines when it comes to mm-hmm. things like access to water and like various technologies or like, mm-hmm. But a lot of the, the stuff you're working on actually pushes much deeper. So I just kind of want to take some time just to focus deeply on the, the content of your work, not just sort of the format. And so maybe uh, where we could start is just for you to, to do the, the quick elevator sort of like pitch or like the, the executive summary of the, the sort of things that you work on when it comes to gender technology. Cool. I suck at elevator pitches, but let's do it. <laughs> so the the field right now, as far as I can see it, is really intersectional. And I think that's amazing. Uh-huh. So there's everything from people working on why, for example, we don't typically refer to menstrual supplies as technologies uh-huh. when they are, uh-huh. to things like the kind of medical gatekeeping that exists with access to gender confirmation technologies, uh-huh. gender confirmation surgeries for trans folk. Uh-huh. There's also discussions of assistive technologies for disabled folk, uh-huh. as well as just tech equity in general, which you kind of talked about, and the digital divide. Uh-huh. And there's there's a lot of really exciting work happening right now in all those different areas. Okay. And perhaps unsurprisingly, a lot of the work that I've read and the work that I'm doing shows us that the promise that I was given, you can tell me if you were given the same promise, but in the early 2000s, I was given the promise of the internet as being a great equalizer. Yeah. <laughs> and that it was going to democratize and equalize everything. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the work I'm doing and that I'm reading has found that that promise has not borne fruit. No. <laughs> what happens is that we carry our biases with us online. Uh-huh. They are built right into the systems we are using. Uh-huh. Uh, they impact things like who has access to technology. Um, we're, so globally, UNESCO tells us that we are more likely to put computers in a boy's room than in a girl's room, for example. Huh. But they also kind of tell us the way the technologies are built and modeled. Uh-huh. So things like why our digital assistants were all rolled out with female voices initially. And uh-huh. just last year, I think Alexa launched a male voice in 20, well, 2021, late 2021. Huh. Um, so yeah, gender is kind of all through it. And it's not just gender, but gender intersecting with things like um, disability status, uh-huh. Um gender identity, uh-huh. um, sexual orientation, uh-huh. race, ethnicity, all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, 
I want to ask you just a quick clarification question. So you mentioned the digital divide a few times. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So it's it's a couple of different things. So first of all, just most basically, do you live in a part of the world where you have access to the internet uh-huh. <laughs> is one issue. Um, there's also the issue of whether or not you have high-speed access, since so much depends on broadband high-speed internet these days. Uh-huh. So that also divides um, communities in terms of whether or not you have access to high-speed internet. Uh-huh. But there's also, even once you get online, there's issues, for example, like, can you access things in your own language? Uh-huh. So at the moment, I believe there are over 100 languages globally that have no representation online whatsoever. Hmm. Um, so that I don't think that's usually classically considered part of the digital divide. It's usually about getting people online who don't have access. Yeah. But I think that it's part of it because what we're telling you then is you have to learn a second language or a yeah. third language in order to access the internet. Yeah. And the lingua franca of the internet is largely English. Yes. I believe 62%, around 60% of the internet is English. Yeah. Um, so that's that's another contributing factor to who can get online and who can't. Yeah. This is interesting because I had not realized that was an issue until uh, COVID, right? So I teaching at a, a rural institution where um, a fair number of our students come from rural places or live in um, uh, reservations uh, where there isn't as good internet access and trying to mm-hmm. figure out how to switch it online where a fair share of our, our students uh, did not at their homes have access to, to uh, consistent and like reliable and and uh, broadband. Yeah. Um, How are you going to stream a Zoom lecture if people aren't on high broadband internet? Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there certainly is a difference of access to uh, to the internet. So uh, yes. So um, so you said a little bit about some of the disparities when it comes to access. I guess then on the other side, what what are like right like some of the things that people are saying about those disparities in access and. Uh, in about like how to address those and what we should be thinking about more broadly when it comes to those disparities. Yeah, there's obviously a lot here, so I'm not going to say everything, (laughs) but um, there's the question that I started with, which is what even counts as technology. Okay. So um, Lisa and I had some former students who were working on menstrual tech equity and arguing that menstruation supplies should count as technology and be part of our discussions of tech equity. Mm-hmm. And I think we often think of there there is a social f- tendency in North America to think of technology in in more masculine terminology. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that end up not counting as technologies or as technological advancements than maybe they should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's also, which I also talked about briefly, who has access to the tech. Um, so you referenced, for example, do you have access to the internet? Are you using it on your phone or do you have access to a computer? Because uh-huh. that made a huge difference to uh-huh. students during the pandemic or during the lockdown phase of the pandemic, right? When we were all online, uh-huh. if you were trying to type essays out on your phone, for example. Yeah. Um, also things like how the technology is marketed. So we can see that often technologies are coded as being for men or for women. And we can see like, the pink marketing and flowers and stuff uh-huh. attached to technologies that are being marketed aggressively towards women, things like menstrual and fertility tracking apps um, that are specifically coded very pink, which can be 
very exclusionary for other people who menstruate, like trans men or non-binary people. There's even how the technology is designed. So I think um, you may have heard that crash test dummies, for example, are often modeled on an average male body, whatever Mm. that might be. (laughs) And that leaves out a lot of people when we're doing our crash testing to make sure cars are safe. We're not necessarily testing on an average female body or on bodies of people who are taller or shorter or Uh overweight or whatever. Uh Um, And so this is for a wide array of tech that we have to ask these questions of what counts as tech, who has access to it, how is it marketed, and how is it designed? Uh My own work focuses specifically kind of on digital technologies and algorithms and digital assistants. Uh And what I've found is that digital technologies tend to reinforce existing biases without even necessarily meaning to. Uh And this is because a lot of algorithms are trained on corpora, which is data that is often gathered from the internet and fed into the algorithm. So um, one that I found recently is if you're looking at Google's translation app or Uh translation service to get it to translate from one language to another, Uh um, If you have it translate from a language that doesn't use gendered pronouns, doesn't use he or she, for example, and translate it into English where we do use gendered pronouns, there are biases that crop up here. Yeah, yeah. So if you ask Google, for example, to translate, they are a philosopher from, say, Malay, which doesn't have gendered pronouns, it will translate into English as he is a philosopher. Which yeah. hurts, Clement. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Well, uh, well, yeah. This is an interesting thing, right? Like, uh, I, I mean, I think a lot of this sort of training uh, of right AIs, uh, right? I mean, I think that's the, the sort of the, the the key problem, right? It's not yeah. being mindful about the data sets they're training from. Yeah, Google just found this out recently, and they are working to fix it. But I mean. It's a massive undertaking yeah. to try and address all the places where this is happening. So they've caught it for some languages that don't use gendered pronouns, mm-hmm. um, but they haven't caught it for everything yet. And then, of course, there was the Amazon hiring algorithm scandal of a couple of years ago, yeah. where Amazon got an algorithm to go. I guess Amazon has a similar problem that academia does. You know, when you put out a job ad and you get like 400 to 1,000 applications <laughs> because there are so few jobs. And so many people, um, yeah. So Amazon, sorry? No, and so many people looking for them. Yeah, and so many people looking for work. So Amazon decided they'd make an algorithm that would sort through the resumes and kind of come up with a lawn list so that that would kind of free up human labor to do other things, right? Yes. And they trained the algorithm, as I understand it, by feeding it the resumes of the people already working there, figuring uh, like, well, we like these people, so yeah. we want more people like this. Yeah. And the algorithm learned sexism. Yeah. <laughs> so it just so happens that a lot of the people working there are men. Um, and so if, you're, if your resume indicated that like you were the ch- captain of the women's chess team, yeah. they checked your re- the, am- the algorithm checked your resume out. Uh, um. And and nobody trained the algorithm on purpose to do this, yeah. but because they're the the company had mostly hired men, this is what the algorithm learned. Yeah, um, yeah. So, I guess then the the right the natural question or the question that at least that pops into my head is then 
what are ways to, to that folks might address some of this, right? So like, suppose one is being wanting to be a little bit more mindful about the data sets that one trains one's algorithms on. Given that we are often tend to be really bad about recognizing our own biases and right until, you know, after the fact, right? We tend not to be very good at proactively identifying where our biases yeah. are. We tend to recognize them after someone's like, hey, <laughs> look at this, right? Like this, uh, right? You clearly have this bias. And then even then, we're sometimes bad at recognizing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how, so like, I guess what is some of the, the, the work about like how we might be, how might we might approach things better, right? To, to yeah. like be a little bit more mindful and, and aware when it comes to biases. I mean, I think this is part of what drives my public scholarship in the first place is the first thing I think we need to do is recognize that it is possible for tech to be biased. Okay. <laughs> Um, because, because we're sold a story that it's not possible, right? We often have this idea of technology as progress of Uh technology as objective in that kind of view from nowhere sense of objective that we're going to remove the human element. And that's going to be an improvement. Uh Um, but it, it's not (laughs) because the human element still built the tech. Yes. And so I think that there are a lot of people that after they heard my CBC Ideas episode or after they listened to some of the podcasts kind of came back and were like, it, I, it had never occurred to me that tech could be biased in this way or in that way. Uh-huh. Um, and so if, if, it, if it doesn't occur to you that this is possible, then you may not recognize the bias when it happens to you. Yes. You might just think, I guess I wasn't good enough for that job at Amazon, right? Yeah. Um, And so I think the first thing that we need to do kind of on a wide scale is acknowledge that this is possible, because if we don't, then we're not going to be on the lookout for it. And maybe that's not the most satisfactory answer as a place to begin, but that's that's kind of where a lot of the scholarship is right now, is just raising public awareness that not only is this possible, but this is actively happening. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, that actually seems like a, a very reasonable place to start, right? Uh, uh, I mean, I think the first first step in addressing any problem is uh, acknowledging that the problem exists. Yeah. Right. Like we don't address problems that aren't problems. And so I I think getting people to recognize that, no, certainly is the case that, uh, right. That, uh, you know, uh, an algorithm can be sexist or racist, uh, which is counterintuitive because I think we, I, I think the ways that we define those concepts tend to be, uh, based on subjective bigotry rather than sort of right. uh, disparity of outcomes. Yeah, I do think yeah. I do think popular discourse still kind of thinks of racism and sexism as an attitude held by individuals. Yes. Rather than as something that can be actively built into systems and structures, or in this case, kind of accidentally built into yeah. systems and structures. Well, I mean, I think often the case now is there it's accidentally built in, right? Like uh I mean, yeah. maybe it's me being generous to it, but like, I, I tend to think that most people aren't intentionally building racist structures anymore or like sexist structures or, or well, I, I think some folks are probably actually very intentionally building in like, uh, uh, I think it's a mixture, and, yeah. but I, I do kind of grab this idea from feminist scholarship that it isn't so much about the intention of the creator. It is about the result because results are things we can tangibly measure and see happening. Yeah. If your algorithm never recommends that you hire a woman. Yeah. Something is wrong. And it doesn't really matter if it was intentionally or unintentionally designed that way. Right. Yeah. Well, and then I think, you know, it matters less what people's, uh, 
attitudes are. It matters more about just what, what sort of outcomes happen to people. Yeah. Right? Like if someone doesn't like me, I don't care. If they're mean to me, I do. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And this can also have really serious kind of comp- consequences for some people. So we've talked about the way the algorithm can do things like uh-huh. um, produce sexist outcomes from from translation software or from hiring software. Uh-huh. And those might be things that you don't necessarily know, right? You, you don't often know the reasons why somebody doesn't call you back for a job. Uh-huh. And it might just be kind of funny that, I mean, translation softwares aren't perfect right now anyway. So why am I complaining about that? But, oh shoot, there's a train going by. Are you picking that up? No. It'll be okay. Uh, Okay. I think it's unavoidable that sometimes happens in my office. I have a pipe that's like whistles from time to time. So like, <laughs> I'm going to have to do some cleaning up of the, the audio. So it's okay. So uh, you, okay. You, you, what were you going to say before the, the train so right. rudely disrupted you? <laughs> so it, you might be wondering like, why am I complaining about this stuff? Because mm-hmm. it's, you know, the, the translation software, it's kind of a minor funny thing and uh-huh. Google is trying to fix it, but there are more serious things that can happen. So I talked about menstrual infertility tracking apps, for example. Uh-huh. And right now there's a lot of concern in the United States in particular that with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh-huh. that the data from menstrual infertility tracking apps could be used to establish whether or not somebody sought out an illegal abortion. Uh-huh. Um, and so this raises to the issue of data and surveillance, which is another big area um, that's investigated when it comes to tech and equity. Uh-huh. That you know we've it's it's very useful. Almost almost everyone I know who menstruates uses a menstrual infertility tracking app <laughs> to uh-huh. track their periods. Almost everyone I know does that. But who owns the data? Who owns this very personal information about yourself? Uh-huh. Well, it's it's not you uh-huh. <laughs> once you put it into the app. And so there is this kind of concern that this could, I, I mean, passing up for a job is harming people, but uh-huh. there are also even more serious issues of pri- violation of privacy, um, issues of criminal charges in the law that come into this when we start looking at the ways in which digital technologies are used by people and the way that interacts with people's gender, gender expression, sexuality, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and then I think the the big problems a lot of the all a lot of those issues are opaque to folks, right? Like I think, right, people mm-hmm. aren't aware that they're happening or don't consider that it could happen. Yeah, yeah. Or or um, when they do think about it, it tends to be in not actually the the ways that it is likely to happen, right? So I'm just trying to think of like all the folks are worried that like vaccines might have like microchips in them, but not think yeah. about like the fact that their cell phones are already tracking them. Yeah, I'm I'm voluntarily carrying that around with me. Yeah. <laughs> it is sitting on my desk right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing I think people are often worried about, and this is a very, very old trope, the idea that like technology will become sentient and rise up and overthrow humanity, right? We're, we're afraid of like the robot wars and our robot overlords. And that yeah. functions really prominently in a lot of science fiction. Yes. But we aren't necessarily afraid of the ways in which our data is being taken and used right now to manipulate our choices uh-huh. in our life right now. Uh-huh. Well, and, <laughs> Even though that's already happening. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, yeah. I mean, right. Like, uh, uh, yeah, I recently stopped using a lot of social media because I realized, right, that the the algorithms are just making me like angry and anxious. Yeah. Right. And, and because like that's what keeps me interacting and that's what 
keeps the ad revenue coming in. So I made me start using like open source stuff that, right, that uh, don't have algorithms yeah. or like I started using Mastodon because because it doesn't have an algorithm. Like, yes, I miss out mm -hmm. on, on some content that I might be interested in, but it also doesn't make me as angry and anxious, mm -hmm. which is nice. Yeah, because it's the attention economy, right? However, they can hold your attention. Yeah. Well, and the, right, like, yes. So, like, I, I think there's a, yes. So there's a lot of these, uh, I think, sort of opaque things that's happening. And then the really insidious thing about technology is that it uh, makes them more opaque because we, right, I think we feel like, uh, technology is something that is neutral and something that we use rather than as something that um, without uh, maybe our awareness actually affects our outcomes, right? Like, yeah. 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 I always tell people like, move your apps around on your phone, like just rearrange them oh, okay. and then see where your fingers go. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll move like Twitter and the library app and then I'm opening the library all the time, which is probably better for me. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh man. I spend way too much time on Twitter. Like, I'm not saying like I'm above this. I'm definitely not. No. But we have been kind of trained by our technologies. Yeah. And that has a bunch of consequences. Well, for, I mean, well, I think this yeah. is, a, yeah, I think this is an interesting point, right? Because uh, I think we tend to think that we make technology, right? Like that the direction of causation is one way that, right? Like we sort of put inputs into technology and then technology is just sort of like right, a passive thing that like responds to, our interactions with it but i think that's increasingly the case not true mm -hmm. and I, I mean i don't think it ever was true right like i i think right human evolution is shaped by our technology right like yeah uh we, we're we're niche or niche constructing uh when we're when we're uh, working with technology and i and i think that continues to be the case and i and i think yes the one where our awareness of it is uh not very good right i think Yes, we're worried yeah. about like robot overlords. We're not worried about how technology is already sort of shaping us. Yeah, shaping our emotions, shaping our attention, yeah. shaping our decisions, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, well, um, and and like reinforcing, uh, yeah, some of the bad ways we interact with one another. Yeah, and sometimes justifying it, right? When I'm, when the algorithm says not to hire that person, I think we feel like, yeah, I'm not racist. It's the the computer says it's the that. algorithm. Yeah. Yes, totally. Right? The computer, the computer agrees with me, and the computer can't be racist. The computer's objective. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then I and I think that is like really insidious, uh, right? That, yeah. Uh, if we're not, being I also medical. just want to talk lastly about some quite serious um, ways in which okay. sex and gender can impact people, particularly in digital space. Sure. Um, there's obviously harassment that can happen to anybody in digital space, mm -hmm. um, but from what we can see from the data, it actually turns out that men are more likely to be harassed than women, uh -huh. um, though this seems to be in part because men tend to occupy digital spaces where bullying and harassment is more common, things like 4chan, for uh -huh. example. Um, but women and people of color are much more likely to be harassed on identity kind of grounds, whereas men are more likely to be harassed based on like political views or things like that. Uh -huh. So you're much more likely to be harassed as a woman or as a person of color rather than harassed based on your views or your opinions. Uh -huh. There's also, of course, things like doxing, the releasing of people's private information to the web, 
Um, things like swatting, where you find out somebody's private information and then you call the police and say that the person is engaged in nefarious activities in the hopes of sending a SWAT team to their house. Uh Um, And things like revenge pornography, which I don't love the name of um, because it kind of implies that you're getting revenge for an action somebody took against you, but usually what you're doing is very disproportionate to whatever quote-unquote harm you may have suffered. But that's revenge pornography, at least in Canada, tends to be over 90% female victims um, yeah. where there, there are images or videos that have been either taken without consent or taken with consent on the understanding that it's to be shared privately among the partners and then is released to the internet in order to try and shame or humiliate or otherwise cause distress to the victim. Yeah. So those are some other ways in which there's a very gendered ax- uh, aspect to the violence that happens online as well. Yeah. Well, so also another way that right, technology, right, the ways that the disparities related to technology are reinforcing uh, disparities that exist yeah. already or as a Absolutely. manifestation of the disparities that exist independently yeah. or yeah. maybe not independently, but separately. Yeah, I, it isn't really independent. Yeah, it, it's definitely kind of things happening online that are also happening offline. Yeah. Though it often ends up being an added reason why women choose not to spend as much time online. At this point, there's another substantial shift in the topic of our conversation. So it makes sense to end this episode here. As a quick review, Jill spoke with me about the disparities related to access to technology. Both disparities relate to infrastructure as well as biases related to design and marketing. Jill also talked about how biases are reinforced and have their impacts magnified by technology and the importance of being mindful about how biases might manifest themselves within technology. In the next episode, I'll share with you the conclusion of the conversation that I had with Jill Fellows. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.